0: So I do this pay it forward and everyone's been great about it. What I say to everyone who I view their K is, I'm gonna ask you one favor, Uh, I'm gonna help you full tilt. In return, will you be willing to share your K, especially if it's funded, uh, but will you be willing to share your K application with who's ever coming up next? Because you did it really well. So usually they're all, these folks are funded. And everyone has said, absolutely. If I can look at someone who's who's basically the framework for success, great. And that has been a super successful model.
1: That's Stephen Friedman. Today, I'm Behind the Microscope. Hello, and welcome back. I'm Joe Banke, and this is Behind the Microscope, a podcast about the people and the process behind the scenes of science and medicine. Today we bring you a conversation with our own Carrie Jansen and Dr. Steven Friedman, a gastroenterologist, physician scientist, and professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Friedman is a leader in pancreatic disease and cystic fibrosis. He serves as the director of the Pancreas Center at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, as well as the chief of the Division of Translational Research. He runs an active research group that studies basic and clinical aspects of pancreatitis. Not only does he balance his own research and clinical practice, but he is actively involved in mentoring the next generation of physician scientists through several focused initiatives. Prior to joining faculty at Beth Israel, Dr. Friedman completed his graduate school training at Yale University School of Medicine, followed by medical school at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine. He then pursued his remaining clinical training, including GI fellowship at Beth Israel, followed by subsequently joining faculty there. In today's episode, we discuss the landscape of physician-scientist training over the last several decades and the challenges faced by the rising generation of trainees. Dr. Friedman discusses a sustainable approach to preparing trainees and junior faculty for success as independent investigators through a pay-it-forward approach. Throughout today's episode, Dr. Friedman provides us with an important reminder to engage in something fun and that has the potential to help change patients' lives. Without further ado, here is our conversation with Dr. Stephen Friedman.
2: Thank you so much, Dr. Friedman, for joining us on the podcast today. We're really excited to have you.
0: Yeah, very excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
2: Yeah, um, our pleasure. Um, We've been fortunate to talk to many physician scientists over the years we've been podcasting and, and are really excited to feature you as well today. And one way that we typically start out is just by asking our guests about um, your career path. Could, so, could you tell us a little bit about what led you to become a physician scientist, and kind of how that went along the way, where you went, and and how your journey has taken you over the years?
0: Great. Well, well thank you. I took a not a perfectly linear journey, and uh, and I probably say many of us who ultimately have become physician scientists did not plan this since elementary school and say, yes, these are the exact steps we're going to do and follow them. So for me, I was a physical chemist uh, during my undergrad years at Boston University and then got married as soon as I graduated and one of us had to work and my wife got into the master's program at Yale in public health and hospital administration. I decided to research for two years, see if I liked this since I hadn't gotten the opportunity to do much research as an undergrad, as a chemist. And uh, it was in neurology at Yale, worked on mechanism of anticonvulsant drug action. Turned out it was the most awesome experience of my life. Uh, Ended up with about seven papers at the end of two years and decided that I really wanted a career in research and then continued this work at Yale, getting a PhD in cell biology, looking at protein phosphorylation as a universal mechanism of regulating uh, vesicular exocytosis from cells, and then about second year of my PhD, two things happened. One is, unfortunately, my grandmother got pancreatic cancer and died a horrible death. And I said, "Wow, I think we can do a lot better than that." Second thing is, there were all these gastroenterologists that kept coming in our lab and doing very disease-oriented research, and it really opened my eyes to be able to potentially change ultimately the standard of care through my research at the bench and bringing it all the way to the bedside. So while I was post at Yale, added my MD on and then went to Beth Israel in Boston and uh, continued my journey ever since, short track into GI fellowship from internal medicine and then stayed on faculty and headed up our pancreas center. I'm also uh, head of a large translational research lab.
2: That's awesome. Um, I love hearing everyone's different journeys and how they came to this career path. Um, and it's really encouraging to hear that your time in the lab was so amazing and so formative for you. Um, cause I think, you know, some people's initial laboratory experiences or, you know, their extended ones during dedicated study or PhD can really shape their career goals and how they feel about the entire enterprise of scientific research. Um, What about your experience made it so incredible and, you know, impactful for you? Um, How can we replicate those types of experiences to help um, trainees um, and kind of aspiring trainees stay excited about science?
0: I think a couple things. One is I had a great mentor during that initial research experience uh, right after undergrad. I think that helps enormously. I think there's not as much focus on on how to train mentors to be excellent mentors uh, and get people excited about a career in investigation. I think another aspect was that he was in the lab with me, my mentor, he was an MD, PhD, MPH, and he just literally rolled up his sleeves. So we were working side by side. He taught me a lot of method. And then obviously I, I ran with these things, but he was in the lab very often. And we would debrief almost every day uh, on the experiments. So it was actually fun. Uh, and it made it, you know, a great experience. Even if the experiment didn't work, if you if you design the experiment well, it will tell you something. And so that was great. He also had me present at meetings, even though I was new to research. I got the exposure at meetings to other investigators, hear about other types of research, how other people try to think about designing projects. And I think that kind of opened my eyes to all of that. Um, so when I eventually then you know, was was doing my PhD in cell biology at Yale, uh, I also had great mentors, a very different lab. Yeah, it was a Nobel laureate. It was uh, um, uh, Jim Jameson and George Pilati. George had won the Nobel Prize figuring out how cells work back in the 1950s and 60s. And lab, I think there was probably 40 some odd of us in that lab huge so unlike me with my mentor uh, for the phd was a massive lab and you know you as a grad student you kind of learn from the the postdocs and the postdocs would learn from junior faculty and lab etc but again i think both lab experiences were for me just it was exciting yes there was the science and that was fun but it was just exciting to be on the the frontiers of trying to trick Mother Nature to reveal her secrets. And like, you know, I'm a Star Trek aficionado. Uh, I loved that growing up. And it's kind of the same thing. Like, how do you get out there where no person has gone before and just think about what are cool questions that you can address? How can you d- devise some, whether it's an animal model, cell model, or human-based research project going kind to of answer those questions? Uh, And then, you know, just an amazing journey to come up with an idea and just ultimately take it all the way to completion, publish it. And I've had a few things that have got, you know, now been uh, put out there and have changed the standard of care at the bedside.
2: That's really um, living the physician scientist dream all the way from bench to bedside. I love that. Um, You know, it's really impressive to me that through all the interviews we've had with people, one of the most common themes is that somewhere along the way a mentor made a huge difference for the path of their career Um, and I think you're totally right that we don't give as much training to mentors and and I want to talk about that too Um, but I think one of the big challenges for people especially trainees is how do you find the right mentor how do you um, identify good mentors how do you get connected with them Um, so I'd love to hear any reflections you have on kind of how you ended up with your mentor that made such a big difference, um, or general advice you have for trainees who are themselves trying to identify the mentors and their careers that will make that difference.
0: Random luck. Uh, but to expand on that, uh, I mean, I lucked out when I got started. Um, I'd say, I think if you're trying to find a good mentor is you know, if you have the opportunity, talk to a few different people that potentially you would like to do work with. See what might be a good fit. Do you want to be in a very small lab? Or instead, do you want to be in a large lab? You know, if you pick someone who has a very prominent name, it's going to be a huge lab, and you're not going to interact with them very much. If that's okay with you, great. But if you really want someone to be more side by side with you in the lab, or you know, touch points a few times a week, probably do not choose, uh, you know, a large lab and someone who's, you know, a Nobel laureate or someone like that. I think as you go around and meet with different folks that maybe you like to work with, if you have the opportunity, see if you can talk to folks who have worked with them, who's in the lab now, or who's who's been mentored by them in the past. Was it a great experience or was it not? You know, for me, uh, you know, subsequently, and this is how I mentor people. You know, I think it should be it's almost like the dating scene. You know, even though I've been married now 47 and a half years, so obviously I lucked out, got the right person. My wife's awesome. Uh, you know, it finding the right lab should be similar, it should be almost like you know, the honeymoon period when you meet with them. It should feel great, you're excited, like, wow, there's a great project if it doesn't quite feel right it probably will only get worse after that so it should be almost like dating where you know it feels like this is this is going to be a great relationship over time second is don't think about just one mentor necessarily i think if you're you know starting off may undergrad uh, or just into grad school maybe you'll will have one mentor i'm a big believer in dual mentorship You can pick a more junior person, maybe the more technology oriented. These are folks that can be in the lab a fair amount. You have access to uh, on top of a senior person, someone who can provide that kind of longstanding expertise, maybe has access to a unique patient cohort or has all kinds of methods or novel things in their lab that you can draw on. If you have two people, dual mentorship, I think that tends to probably be a more uh, successful recipe for success.
2: I think those are all really helpful reflections and great advice. Um, I love the analogy to dating. I think that's really um, that's a really good one and, and also a tangible one that that people can latch on to. Um, I want to circle back to talking about how to train mentors because um, I think that's a big piece of this puzzle, right? Um, if mentors are so important to so many people's success, then then we probably should pay some attention to how we form those mentors and equip them. Um, to be the best mentors possible. So I guess I'd love to hear if you have ever like received any training about becoming a mentor, if you have um, kind of a philosophy about how you think we should go about making sure that, um, that mentors are really well equipped to do the mentoring.
0: Yeah, there's very little training of mentors, which is an issue, especially in the research field. I think clinically, there's a number of good clinicians that are good mentors when it comes to seeing patients. But in the research, there's been you know a severe lack of focus on this. I did not have any formal training, although I've kind of learned it over time. And I've tried to take from everyone who's mentored me over the years uh, what I can learn from them, Um and I'll, I'll give you specifics on i think how we should go forward i'll just mention so i've won the the harvard medical school cliff barger mentoring award which is kind of a big deal um probably these are more proud of these mentoring awards than i am of being promoted to full professor at harvard uh, i just won the advancing the culture of mentoring at harvard award as well in this past month so i think i'm also incredibly proud of that and these program our focus and, and are basically focused on, you know, how do we now train people to be mentors? And there's a program called CIMER, C-I-M-E-R, that was started at Wisconsin uh, around 2014, 2015, and officially launched. And this is to train research mentors how to be excellent at being a research mentor. It's training people, and not only how to, how to do research in the lab, but how do you think about what's an exciting but doable project? How do you get funded? So what is, you know, strategies for, uh, for being successful at writing grants? That's my forte. And I run a program both at Harvard called Grasp and another program at Cornell. And we run about uh, almost 80 to 90 percent success rate that people will get an NIH R01 after a K being in my program, 28%, percent will get an R01 on the first attempt. Um, so I think simmer, which I'm actually becoming one of the trainers of that program, there's, I think are probably gonna be about 20, 25, 25 of us around the country, they're gonna be trainers, that are trying to disseminate that knowledge and train people who say they wanna be research mentors and how to being really good mentors uh, for their trainees. So I think there needs to be much more of a focus on this. I remember when I put in my first R01 grant application as a GI fellow, and I gave it to my mentor at that time, who was great in the lab. And I gave him my my grant application out of a month ago. And I said, you know, can you take a look at this? Really criticize it, give it back to me dripping in red ink. That was the era still you wrote on things. Uh, And he looked at me and said, what's this? And I said, my first big R01 grant application. He goes, I don't understand. I said, well, I like your critique before I send it in. He goes, that's not how it works. Uh, this is the test of your medal. You'll submit. If it's funded, you deserve to be in research. If it's not funded, you don't. And I'm like, holy cow, that's a little bit severe. So, you know, I think this Darwinian approach, which is what's been in place for a long time, uh, not really the way we should be doing research. We should mentor people in all aspects, including career development. And then on the flip side, I think, I don't know, maybe I'm the only one in the United States who's done this. I've set up programs for our mentees uh, in our, in our, my med school GRASP initiative, this grant review and support program to help people with a K get their 1st R O R01. We, I developed what's called the mentor mentee expectation form where the mentee maps out what's important to them, and then they sit down with their mentor and then uh, finalize this form. Looks like a giant Excel spreadsheet, but it's which articles uh, is your men- does the mentee want to be first author? Which ones they want to be senior author? What about intellectual property? What about lab space? What about having access to research texts or other postdocs in the lab? What about support and letters of... Uh, uh, of support for, for faculty promotion? What about if you're having you know family needs and you need to have extra money to uh, put your kids in day school, things like that? So all those things, fair game. And the mentors actually love it when the mentees come with this form, everything itemized. And then the, the mentors have come to me and said, Whoa, this is great. I now know what the mentee actually wanted. It was not clear in my mind. They wanted to be the on these papers and this one a senior author, because that's critical in an R01.
2: Yeah, I think that's really um, important and and such a and like such a simple but in some ways revolutionary idea just to make things clear, right? Especially in these physician scientist careers where we're balancing our time. Between two different kind of full-time jobs, um, to have the clarity of expectations, I think is really important. And, you know, one of our other guests one time, her kind of thesis advice was ask for what you need. And I think in a lot of ways, sometimes our our medical training and our scientific training don't really teach us to be bold in asking for what we need. Um, and so I love the idea of kind of formalizing that so that the trainees have an opportunity to say, like, this is what I feel like I need. Um, to succeed at this level, and and then working together to make that happen,
0: and I think those are the critical words you're saying. I think if if someone says I'm demanding this, um, mm-hmm. obviously that doesn't work. But if it's this is what I need, and this is really what's going to help me be successful, I just want to have an open conversation about that. Then you know I think that's perfect. And I've never heard of a mentor ever saying, "Wow, you know I don't understand, and I'm not going to support this." It's the opposite. It's like Thanks for sharing this. And plus, you know, I think these are a number of sensitive issues that's hard to bring up as a mentee, especially when you start asking for supports or things like that. And I think just having clarity helps enormously. Uh One person in my program actually used this uh, to help plan her wedding. Uh this wife said no one would be pissed off at her for saying she needed this, this, and this to get everything <laughs> ready.
2: <laughs> I actually did something a little bit similar myself when playing at my wedding. Um <laughs> I think it's a great, a great tool. Um you know, another question that I often think about for physician scientists is um, about trying to kind of maintain both of those careers in one. Um How have you found ways to maintain that balance in your life, keeping your science very rigorous, but also like staying um, really up to speed in clinic and maintaining that clinical excellence that we all seek um, for our patients?
0: For me, it was staying very focused in both arenas, focused on being an adult GI doc. Uh, I was actually focused on pancreatic disease, especially chronic pancreatitis in young women, what causes it how do we diagnose it and how can we develop novel therapies to treat it? Uh, and the same thing on the research. It was very focused on chronic pancreatitis. Can I develop animal models, cell models or organoids, uh, as well as clinical research trials? So I tried to have them both uh, feeding into each other and very focused. So that way I could be an expert clinically and expert on the research. It's not easy being a physician and the scientist And if you want to be at your A game in both spheres, I think it's very doable. So I don't even do general GI. I only do basically pancreatic disease. And what I did early on was, as a fellow, was to create the first multidisciplinary uh, pancreas clinic in the country. This was back in the late 1980s. It was multidisciplinary. And actually, I started it at night on a Thursday night. Uh, why would I started on a Thursday night? So it was me, the two chief residents in surgery who are also interested in pancreatic disease and a Hemong fellow interested in pancreatic cancer. We said, number one, it wouldn't interfere with our research during the daytime. <laughs> uh, number two, that was, uh, that was probably a big driving factor. Number two is, well, we were just a bunch of kids. We were the kind of fellows and chief residents, uh, And we figured no one would come see us, but if you had evening office hours, people did not have to take off from work. You wouldn't have to pay a thousand dollars to park for two hours because it's dirt cheap to park at night. Uh, And so we did an evening clinic and the hospital at first said, well, no one does evening clinics. We'll give it three months. We'll staff it up. No one chose. We pulled the plug. It turned out we were a massive hit and people just came. So uh, so clinically, that helped me jump my pancreas practice. And I think if you're starting off and you're trying to have a dual career like this, if there's a way to figure out some some niche in your clinical area, then I think that's helpful. I think number two is you have to limit your hours clinically. I mean, if you really want to do high-end research, that is 70% of your effort. Uh, whatever many hours that is. For me, that's like 70 plus hours a week. I have a blast in lab, but you really got to focus on the research. So uh, clinically, I picked a specialty where you know I could do clinic for four hours on a Thursday night and I would scope half a day a week. I was doing ERCPs for a while, this advanced endoscopy procedure. I gave that up. It was impossible to be a high-end endoscopist and uh, be a high-end researcher. So I think you just have to see what are the trade-offs and then, you know, figure out what you need to help on the clinical side. Do you need nursing or other support or PA? Talk to your chief about that. And then on the research, again, being focused and jumping on a project that is doable. I think if you're going to pick a project that you're just launching into becoming faculty member, you're not having any hits, probably going to be more problematic. You're going to be trying to spend a lot more time. It's going to be hard juggling a clinical and research career. During residency, if you can have time for research, whether you're an MD, MD, PhD, uh, and a lot there are a number of MDs who have done almost no research, that during residency start doing it. And that's when they get to launch their career. And during residency is when you have the most latitude to do anything you want. That's a time... And and I head up our physician scientist track in our internal medicine residency program. Uh, That's a time we can think about what do you want to put in your toolbox to get that exposure? Do you want to see what clinical research is like? Creating an IRB application and a clinical research design. Instead, do you want to be in the lab? Uh, Do you want to be doing hardcore bench? Do you want to be doing more translational science? Do you want population science? Residency is your last chance to kind of play around Like that, once you get into a fellowship, assuming you're going to do a fellowship, then you have to start locking and loading, you know, what kind of research, what that project is. That's the time you want to get preliminary data so that if your aspiration is to submit a K application when you come on faculty or whatever similar career development award, you have to have something working. Not absolute, but it'll make your life a lot easier.
2: I think that's all really great advice. Um, you mentioned uh, being in charge of the physician scientist pathway um, at Beth Israel, um, and so in that role, you're very involved in in the part of training that many people would argue is the leakiest part of the leaky pipeline um, for physician scientist training—that transition from um, during GME and GME into like into independence. Um, and so, I'd love to hear any reflections you have about kind of where the training pathway is headed in general, um, what you think we can do about the leakiness of the pipeline and and what you're looking forward to in the future um, for physician scientist training.
0: It's tough. Uh, I'll say things that may sound slightly more negative at first and then I'll come to the more positive. I think ultimately it's all positive. So number one, everyone will tell you this, no matter where you go for residency, no matter what the specialty is, you gotta get trained well clinically. Number one through 10, well trained clinically. What's harder is especially with limited hours, you know, we have fixed hours for you know what what you can do each week. It gets hard to figure out how to add in research into that. And research being uh didactic programs, but also just whatever you're gonna do hands-on. So in the lab or uh, clinical research trials, etc. So it is always a, a, a juggling act trying to figure out how do we just work around the resident schedule to get people involved. So you know, I think none of us know that answer. We ch- all keep trying different things. I'm encouraged that uh, you know what we started when I started this about I don't know four years ago or so uh, when I t- uh, headed up our physician sciences track, which was a little bit kind of looser. Now it's structured since I've taken it over. Uh, We started with about two individuals in it. Uh, We're now about eight to ten a year. Not all are MD, PhDs. We usually have like three or four MD, PhDs. But we also have some MDs who are very, very dedicated to career uh, as a physician scientist. And basically, if you want to be in our physician scientist track, you just tell us and you're in. we rather be more inclusive, including having people join in their second year of a three year medicine residency, uh, rather than being exclusive. The NIH is very focused on this as well. They realize that many MD, PhDs do not stay as physician scientists. They just go the clinical routes. Like you're mentioning, uh, it's a very leaky pipeline. Uh, so my goal is just to give people an exposure. Uh, whatever your training is or was. And I've tried to be creative. Everyone in our programs tried to be creative. Uh, one person who was short tracking uh, did hardcore bench research on pancreatic cancer. Uh, he's now at Hopkins in you know, oncology fellowship. He wanted to do more translational clinical research. So it was like impossible figuring out how to bring him into lab meetings. So we had evening lab meeting. I gave him my postdoc. You know to have access. So he just designed the study and the postdoc did the more mundane hands-on stuff. So I think you just have to be creative. It's very hard with the time uh that residents have, or like you just mentioned before we started the podcast, all of a sudden someone you know has to do Jeopardy and so not available. Uh so I think we just keep coming up with creative things. Uh, our folks in our physician scientist track are invited to our monthly webinars for uh, everyone in this call Epstein society at Beth Israel which is from residency to fellowship to junior faculty anyone who wants a career in research uh, we have about I don't know, about 150 some odd people in that so the residents can drop in anytime i would hope they do it every month i keep moving around the days and times it just it's hard to get people in their clinical schedule but i try to come up with different didactic forums but also being flexible in the research a number of programs don't offer really the research part. You know, we try to offer, and it may not all be contiguous weeks, but we try to offer as much research flexibility as possible. Uh, even the short tracking people, uh, they pulled off doing the research, usually with, again, lab tech or research coordinator support. That's, that's kind of worked out as well. In part, we like to keep meeting with folks in our physician-scientist trap, just saying, you know, first of all, how's the research going? Uh, we try to hook them up with dual mentorship. What's working? What's not working? We try to have like dinners periodically. Uh, food and alcohol usually is a good bribe, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but we keep we keep trying different things. I think that's the bottom line. I think the one thing we don't want, which is uh, what I experienced. So, I was obviously hard, hardcore trained in research. I started at Beth Israel and I was short tracking. So for two years, nothing happened. No research, just clinical assault. And uh, my era was 36 hours on, 12 hours off. That was the life. And, uh, and then fellowship started, did research. And then uh, I stayed on at Beth Israel and Harvard. And they put me on as instructor in medicine. And I said to the department chair, I said, that's great. Happy to be here. I said, I'm a little curious why with 37 articles, mostly first author, all peer reviewed. Why am I an instructor? And he goes, well, you had gap years. There were two gap years We didn't do anything. And I said, yeah, it was called residency. And he goes, there were gap years. So I think what we want now, not so much to hinder any promotion, is we want that continuation of your research education. Yeah, it may not be as full tilt during residency, but we don't want it to stop during residency.
2: I think that's so important. And and I love the creativity about trying to equip trainees to keep things going, even if it may be a little lighter during those residency years through more resources like lab techs or whatever else it may be that makes that possible. Um, Another thing that, you know, I think lots of people reflect on as important in surviving these big uh, leaky points in the pipeline is, is the idea of the career awards, like K awards and things that um, are so important for that transition from being a trainee to having your own independent lab. Um, And, you know, from both trainees and um, more senior faculty alike, I've heard increasing concern over the last few years about the difficulty to obtain one of those awards. And, and the idea of them um, becoming more achievement than development awards in some cases. Um, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, and kind of maybe how we can, if you agree with that sentiment, if if we can course correct from there, or how we can, um, if you know, if the case stay that way, how we can fill the gap for the people that aren't quite at that point but still need to help in this transition into independence.
0: Definitely, we need to help folks the days where if you had any reasonable training, you'd get a K on the first attempt are over. The days where it was 25th percentile for an R01, and there were a lot of crappy researchers apply. And sure, you know, as a senior investigator or established investigator, you got an R01 on the first attempt. I mean, all those days are gone. NIAID, if you want to go down to that institute, is at the eighth percentile for an R01 right now. I mean, it's just terrible numbers uh K's have gotten much more difficult to get and much more difficult to get on the first attempt um, you know a couple things I'd say number one is uh what I do at my place with this Epstein Society and it's just me but I review at least the aims page of everyone going in for a K. uh I'm the gatekeeper in part this way we we and we and I and I tell everyone we want minimum six months lead time before the K goes in, so I can work with you. I can revise, give you a critique on your on your aims page and other parts, uh, along with your scientific mentor. Uh, I, I think second is um, uh, besides actually reviewing the aims page is uh, I do this called pay it forward. So I used to bat a thousand. Anyone who worked with me on a K. You got funded on the first attempt. Uh, as of about three years ago, you, it's gotten a lot harder. That is not the case. I'm still a pretty high number, but not that high anymore. Um, so what I do is, for example, in the past two years, let's mention the career development section has dramatically changed. This bar is now super high. It used to be you could just say, yeah, I have one or two mentors. Here's their name. Yeah, they got a whole bunch of papers. And yeah, here's a whole bunch of courses I just pulled off a catalog. I'm going to propose to take No longer flies. You will not get a K funding. You now need to be very specific what each mentor is going to give you. Also, every course has to be absolutely tailored to you, what you need for to be able to do your research. It is a whole different beast. You now have to have, I think it's like 12, 12 letters of reference. Okay, total 12. And each one has to have a different bent to it. So I do this pay it forward, and everyone's been great about it. What I say to everyone who I view their K is, I'm gonna ask you one favor. Uh, I'm gonna help you full tilt. In return, will you be willing to share your K, especially if it's funded, uh, but will you be willing to share your K application with who's ever coming up next? Because you did it really well. So usually they're all, these folks are funded. And everyone has said, absolutely. If I can look at someone who's who's basically the framework for success, great. And that has been a super successful model. I've also put on these kind of webinar panel sessions. So for example, just the career development section, because even for me, it has taken on a whole new uh, set of rules to do that. So I took a couple of folks, one in OBGYN, one in virology at our place. who who are super successful with their career development section, as well as their whole K, but especially creative. And basically, I had them as a panel session talk about how did they create it? How many months did it take? It took, on average, three to four months just for the career development section, find the right courses, figure out the right mentors and how to describe and get all the letters. And so we put on a whole panel session, hear it from people who just went through a K submission process and was successful, what does it take? And and I think that also helps. Again, I think, you know, we should be helping provide supports, not make this a Darwinian model, which it kind of been. And I'm and I don't think people are purposely making it Darwinian so much, but you know, it keeps changing the kind of rules of engagement is how I refer to it. And I think the more we can create kind of an incubator and cadre uh, kind of approach where where we're bringing people together at different stages who are going after Ks or other career development, then you can focus more on the science, have the fun of doing research and not feeling like, oh, crap, I'm going to go in now for a second attempt. And for now it's not funded for a second attempt. At my K, what am I going to do? And now I'm being told, uh, you know, research is probably not going to be it. And so I think we need to, to change how we provide supports for people in all these different spheres.
2: Yeah, I love that idea. And I love the pay it forward idea. I know I personally benefited from having successful applications for my F-30 fellowship. And, and that's something that in my work that I've done with the American Physician Scientists Association, we're kind of trying to establish a grant repository, um, starting with the fellowship, the F-Awards. Um, the fellowship awards for the you know undergrad medical education and and uh, PhD students um, to try to help do that pay it forward especially for people who may be at institutions where they aren't able to find um, someone at their institution that's been successful before um, and so I, I love that idea of extending it in um, into the K awards and and making sure that people are paying it forward I think um, that's such an important aspect of of helping improve the leakiness of the pipeline you know I think a lot of times. We all have big ideas about how we can change um, like national structures or philosophies about training physician scientists. But I think a lot of what you've shared today is kind of a boots on the ground approach to how we can start trying to fix the pipeline at our individual institutions and individual programs um, and kind of build from the ground up at the same time as talking about, you know, larger national level initiatives to help from that level. Um, so I think that's a great reminder to kind of Start where you are and with who's around you um, in whatever way you can, um, Joe. Kind of before we ask any closing questions, did you have any any questions you wanted to add?
1: Hey, thanks, Doctor Freeman. Really, uh, really enjoyed listening to you the the past uh, thirty minutes or so. Related to the pay it forward thing, which I, I really um, enjoyed hearing about. What other elements do you think contribute to a, a great um, like training environment for physician scientists?
0: Yeah, I think it's one, it should be a fun environment. I think no matter what you do, if you work hard, if you're working hard in long hours, if it's not a fun environment, probably don't do it. I mean, I love being a physician, you know, even though, you know, I've worked obviously long hours. Uh, it's a blast and it's a privilege to be able to take care of people. Same thing on research. I think it's the ultimate privilege that we get to be on the frontiers figuring out how cells work or what causes diseases, uh, how to come up with a better assay and maybe point of care. Uh, you know, I think, I think this is amazing. So I think being anything we can do to, to make an environment exciting and feeling like, wow, I'm really making an important contribution. I think number one, that's really important. You know, I think another, you know, goal, I think for all of us should be wherever there's lesions in our system. uh, And Carrie talked about the leakiness in residency and fellowship. I think there's lesions there. Uh, Lesions being, it's really hard to get funding. So we should put things in place that make it easier for funding. Make that part of the training. Uh, Provide mentorship that is not just, yeah, this is how you do an assay in the lab. The mentorship should be, You know, how do you think about creating a lab, you know, creating a lab ultimately, whether it's basic science, clinical research, et cetera. uh, I mean, it's like I watch Shark Tank on Friday nights uh, and it's like Shark Tank. We get to be entrepreneurs. We have our own little business, meaning we have to get grants and we get our people and we come up with really cool ideas. I mean, what you know, that's so awesome. But no one really trains us in doing that. So I think it's that kind of training to be an entrepreneur, that kind of training of dovetailing. You know, in academia, uh, no one trains us in project management skills. I mean, I never learned that. So as I started working with a company, they're like, what do you mean you're going to go do some studies and come back in six months with data? It's like, okay, in Q1, we're going to have three touch points. Q2, which quarter two? these touch points, et cetera, go, no, go signal. And that's where I learned project management. I think that's part of the issue in doing research and perhaps doing research during residency and fellowship, where you're trying to juggle out other things is, you know, having some project management tools. You know, I think if we can come up with those things, then it just makes, you know, what we're trying to do so much fun. And, uh, man, I think it's, it's great. I mean, very few folks are out there doing, uh, the role of a physician scientist. And I think that's just so amazing if you can do that, uh, because you have the potential of, of changing how we care for patients.
1: Appreciate that. Thank you uh, so much. And then uh, sort of an unrelated question. Moving forward, what do you think are some important um, priorities for trainees uh, You know, as it relates to training the next generation of, of physician scientists?
0: Yeah, I think number one is making sure financially this is not a hardship. Uh, these folks have been in school for a long time and you don't get that much of a salary, relatively speaking, as a resident fellow. I think we have to recognize that maybe we should be doing other things. So especially if people are going to come out with debts and the price of housing and childcare and everything else, if you want to have a family. Uh, Number one, we got to make sure we're we're taking care of the financial aspect. I think number two is making it so that age 48 to 50 is not when you get your first NIH R01 or equivalent independent research grant uh, or even a K or other career development award when you're age 45 or 46. I mean, that is just so late. So I think we need to figure out how do we financially resource up someone's research? that we believe has the promise of being a really good, talented physician researcher. And it's not just all about the gold standard, which has been, yeah, an NIH R01, and then we'll, we'll, we'll look at you a little bit more carefully. Uh, I, I think it can't be that way. A program I've set up, and I know almost no one else does this, is, for example, with Dr. Cammy Martin in neonatology, uh, we join forces And even though I'm not a neonatologist, turned out all this fatty acid metabolism defect I was describing in chronic pancreatitis were similar defects in preterm infant. And when I said to her in year one, I'll put in for the grants. After that, she's PI in all grants, and we're gonna together raise philanthropic monies. And, And then everything can be in her name. I'm a full professor. I don't need to have grants under my name as PI anymore. And, and, you know, we'll be stronger together. Turned out that was all true. And she got ultimately an hour one on the first attempt, but we probably were raising at least 500,000 to a million every year together. Uh, and then that money was available to her. I gave her my lab. So she had the lab space. That was her. Uh, I gave her, you know, my research personnel and her trajectory just took off. I think that has to be more the model, uh, especially more senior people. They don't need to be PI on the grant, but they can mentor and help younger people get the money, get the philanthropy, get the industry support.
1: I really like that. I think it's a sustainable way to go about this. Um, So really appreciate that.
2: I love that. Um, You've shared so much um, insightful wisdom in the time that we've been chatting. Um, And we like to close out with kind of our last um, question that we ask everyone, which is, what advice do you have for aspiring physician scientists or physicians or scientists um, that for you know the rest of their careers? If there was one piece of advice you could give, what would it be?
0: Be inquisitive on something that would be really fun to work on. If it's not fun, or you're not being that inquisitive, probably not gonna be in that enjoyable and things won't go well. So that's uh, This otherwise worked for me.
2: I love that. Simple advice, um, but important and, and powerful to follow. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Friedman, for, for joining us. This has been really fun. And I know, um, I know a lot of our listeners will really gain a lot from from listening to this episode.
0: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: That's our episode for this week. We want to thank Dr. Friedman for the great conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share with others who may appreciate this content. For more from the team at Behind the Microscope, including our blog, please visit our website at www.behindthemicroscope.com. Please feel free to leave us a review so we can improve our process. Behind the Microscope is executively produced by Vijan Saidi, Kerry Jansen, Michael Saig, Nelson Wang, and myself. Our faculty advisors include Dr. Brian Robinson, Dr. Mary Horton, Dr. Chris Williams, Dr. Talia Schwartz, Dr. David Schwartz. I'm Joe Banke, and thank you so much for listening. Tune in with us next time.